You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. My guest today is David Nagel. David Nagel is someone that I've been following since January 2017. And I know that because I attended my first David Nagel seminar in January 2017. And it really was the beginning of my strong interest in personal development. David shares his teachings basically for how to think. You could refer to him as a business coach, a success coach, an income acceleration coach, and he is all of those things. But at the core of what he does is he teaches people how to think. Thinking is everything. There's a quote that I love, which is, whether you think you can or think you can't, you are right. Whether you are a success in life and achieve everything that you want or whether you don't, I firmly believe it is solely the result of your thinking. Your thinking leads to your actions and your actions lead to effects. There is so much more to this. I sat down with David for 90 minutes and talked about a lot of these philosophies, but also David's personal experience and how he learned these philosophies himself and applied it to his own life to become the success that he is today. And without any further ado, here we go. So I'm here today with David Nagel. And for those of you who have been living under a rock and don't know who David Nagel is, he's a personal development coach and host of the Successful Mind podcast. Welcome again, David. And thanks for giving me your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So we we had probably an hour-long conversation already that we had to scrap because of some technology issues. Yeah. So but I wanted to get into a little bit about you. I love your podcast and anybody who hasn't listened to your podcast really needs to listen to your podcast because you talk about so many things. Um, I don't want to just say universal law, but you basically teach people how to think. Would that be an accurate statement? That would be an accurate statement. That would be an accurate statement. Um, I don't always know how to describe what you do. I've described <laughs> you as a mindset coach, a success coach, a business coach, an income acceleration coach, basically whatever you need. Yeah, well, we do all of that. You know, I mean, it's um, it's all kind of one and the same. You can't, you're not going to build a business without the right mindset and uh, you're not going to earn the money without the right mindset. So for me, it started with the mindset and then it moved down into, you know, the specific strategies and skill sets that go along with uh, getting those things done. You know, um, you, it's interesting when you, when you get into any kind of personal development or professional development, you find out that basically you end up addressing every area of your life. Because if you have one area that is causing you uh, a turmoil of some kind, it's going to affect the success that you want. So you've got to get it straightened out, at least to a point where you can operate successfully in the area that is bringing you in whatever you're you're looking to bring in whether it's money or business or whatever so everything kind of leads together you know it it 
people have said that to me over the years, like, what is exactly do you do? And it's like, well, I basically what I do is I help people get what they want. That's like in a nutshell, that's what I do. And it, it's either from, you know, strategic thinking perspective or understanding universal principles so that you understand how to think correctly based in the truth of life uh, or, or it's a strategy like hardcore business strategy or skills. But you had to learn how to do that yourself. And you do talk a lot about your background and your own personal experiences throughout your podcast. But if you had to really pinpoint if you had an aha moment, if it even happens like that, when was that for you? An aha moment that did what specifically? That that you sort of realized this, that that it came together for you, that whatever you didn't have in your life was the result of a way, perhaps a way that you were thinking. Well, oh, so that it had to do with my thinking. So the aha moment for that came when, um, you know, things were going really bad. Everything was, was a culmination in my life that was being built on a bad reaction to a tragedy that happened in 1970 in my family. So there was this, 1970, there was this fire and my mom's brother, my uncle, and uh, his two kids, my cousins, died in this tragic house fire. It was, it was terrible. It was horrible. And, um, you know, these two kids were my playmates when I was a little boy. So uh, we knew each other all very well. And uh, I'm little. You know, my mom is, I think my mom was pregnant with my, my brother at the time. And nobody had really the emotional skill set to deal with this tragedy. So grandma and grandpa are involved. We're living with grandma and grandpa at the time. And it's just, it starts off with, you know, you go through the trauma, this and that. And then it starts, the, the, the trauma starts to affect the family. Marriages are breaking up and uh, there's a lot of uh, resentment and anger. Like, it just starts going downhill, like one, one year after year after year after year. Until it gets to the point where my mom kind of checks out for about three years. My parents are divorced. My dad's, I'm in Chicago with my mother and my brother. My father's in Arizona. And there's really nobody looking after us. So I'm kind of living on the streets of Chicago, uh, just trying to make my way. And I'm not getting any solid guidance in life. So I'm trying to find some on my own. But, you know, I I still end up with, you know, a shitload of stuff and and making bad decisions. I end up having a near-death experience. I get I get in a, in a, basically a boating accident, a water skiing accident where I get separated from the boat. I get sucked through a dam. I almost get killed. And that moment wakes me up to the idea that I better get, I better get my, my shit together now, because if I don't, if I had died that day, I would have left my wife and my two kids with nothing but a a basket full of problems. And, and that was, that was a stark realization to me because in that time of my life, I was probably like 22, 23 at the time. Uh, the idea was I have plenty of time to fix this stuff. You know, I'm not really taking it seriously. But I had quit high school, and I didn't have, I didn't have a, uh, uh, any kind of an education. I didn't have any skill sets. So I was either driving a truck or working on a forklift you know, back in those days. And not realizing that I needed to take life more seriously and really get some skills and some education in me if I was going to build any kind of a life for my family. If I was going to participate in the, in the win of my family versus another tragic loss. So I'm going along 
And it, and nothing's getting better after this accident. For some weird reason, I thought maybe something would get better, but it, nothing got better. And then I find myself, I'm on this dock. We, we end up filing bankruptcy. We, our car gets repossessed. We have to leave an apartment in the middle of the night because we can't pay the rent anymore. We have to move to you know, a less than adequate neighborhood next door to a drug dealer. It just was not a, it was not a good time in my life. And, and it just kept getting worse and worse. I was getting reprimanded at work. I wasn't doing a good job. I had a bad attitude and it was going down, down, down real fast. And I just had a, I was tired. I was cold. It was February in Chicago. I was absolutely exhausted. And I had like an emotional meltdown in the back of a trailer one night. And I just started crying. And I was asking God, please show me something, some way out of this. Because I had been trying to figure out how do I turn it around. And the answer seemed logical. You have to go back to school. You have to finish your education. And you have to get in with a company and, and build a career. But this is pre-internet. There's no, you, to go back to school, you got to go to night school, right? Or you got to go on the weekends. And I didn't have the time or the money to do that. I was working six and a half days a week. I couldn't figure out how to get out of this situation. So this little voice in my head said, change your attitude. So this is my first insight into thinking might have something to do with this. And I will tell you, Christina, I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was completely ridiculous when, when I had that thought. So I did it anyway. I changed three things in my attitude. And in a month, my income tripled. And I was floored. I was just absolutely floored. I went what did you 20- change in your attitude? You said there were three things. Yeah, three things. So what I did was um, I looked at the guy. I, I needed a reference point. I needed something to show me what an attitude was so I knew what to change. Because I honestly didn't know. Um, I kind of thought it was had something to do like, do you, do you act happy or are you positive or whatever? But I really didn't know what components made up an attitude or that you could control it or you could change it. Like I really didn't know. So I look at the guy that owns the company that I'm working for and he was the largest food importer in the United States at the time. And he built a real successful business. And the story was that it started, he, he built it out of his garage. He started out of his garage and he's got this major, huge corporation. And I thought, what is it about this guy? Like back when he was in his garage, how did he view what he was doing? And I thought, well, you know, he must have liked what he was doing to some degree because he took it from the garage to this major corporation. So I said, okay, that's the first thing I'll change. I'll start acting like I love what I do. And then I thought, well, he must have also done a really good job in order to, to, to build this. And I, and I recognized that I was not. I was not working with any kind of quality to my work. I just worked to half-ass it, get done, and get the hell out of there. Um, So I said, okay, I'm going to do every job to the best of my ability. And then the third thing was that I was was developing a real attitude with other human beings. Um, And primarily it was because I was so angry at myself and frustrated. I was taking it out on other people. So I said, I'm going to treat everybody with total respect because I saw this guy I mean, we worked in a warehouse and, and, and probably about 80% of that warehouse, well, maybe not 80%, but a good percentage of the warehouse didn't even speak English. A lot of it were, was immigrant help that was working there. And he would not walk past the person, the owner, without stopping to say hello. And he didn't even speak Spanish, right? So the, I, I noticed that and I thought, you know, he cares. He treats people well. You know, he treats them like a human being. He has respect for the people that work for him. I don't have respect for anybody. I'm just angry all the time. 
So I started treating people with respect. So I did those three things. And in a month, my income tripled. And that's when something clicked in my head. I was like, okay, there's something to this. For this big of a result to happen, it's it's unquestionable. Like you made this change and 30 days later, your income triples. Um, So I'm like, okay, I got to find out what the hell I did. But I didn't even know where to start. So, you know, it was go to the library, go to the bookstore, that type of thing. Until I came across Tony Robbins' personal power tapes in the middle of the night one night, uh, probably back in like 91, 92. And I bought those off the, off an infomercial on uh, late night TV. And then somebody was directly speaking to success and success mindset and how important it was. And, you know, I would say 98% of what he was talking about on those tapes, I didn't understand what the fuck he was saying. Like I had no idea about the concepts that he was talking about. I had to listen to him over and over again. I started reading the books that he recommended. I started studying and I went on, I went on a, 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 a tear of study for about seven years outside of my family and work. The only thing I did was study. I didn't go to movies. I didn't watch TV. Um, I really didn't do anything except those three things. It was family, it was work, and it was every free moment that I had, I was studying something. Did you have some improvement over the course of those seven years in terms of the results you were getting? Yeah. So what happened, what caused the increase in the income was I became aware of an opportunity that had been around me for two years for me to leave the company I was working for and go to work for a different company. But it was still driving a truck. It was, but now it was driving a petroleum truck. I was, I was delivering gas and diesel fuel. I started off there driving the truck. And when I left, I was in charge of expansion of the company across the United States. So in seven years, I went that far in the, in the company. Because I've heard you say at different times that you'll see a lot of the same people go to your events for different reasons. And you emphasize that you can't just always be thinking and getting ready to do something. You have to take some action too. Yeah. So it seems like it's a balance between well, studying, but actually doing. Oh things. yeah. Between, between the studying and the doing. Yeah. It's, it's a total balance. Like, like I was applying everything that I was learning about myself to my business or not to my business, to the co- to company that I was working for my job. I was applying it to my family life. I was applying it to me personally. Um, so yeah, I was working on it every single day. I made much bigger leaps in, in my income and stuff when I left that company and I started my own company. Um, that went you know, un, unbelievably quick. But you know, when you start your own business, if you have the right business, you're creating a different vehicle for wealth than you do if you're working for somebody else. I mean, right towards the end of, uh, of my time working at the petroleum company, when I had, I had, I had this opportunity, I well, actually, I created this opportunity to expand the company and they were very resistant. And the, the owner, he was getting old. He's ready to retire. He's got five kids they're ready to start stepping up into higher areas of management. I knew I was never going to surpass any of the kids because it was a very tight family. But the owner calls me in and he said, if you want to do this, he's like, I'll, I'll, I'll let you do this. We'll do this. We'll, we'll do it. Um, he said, but I got to tell you, you're never going to make any more money than you're making right now. And I was making about some, I was making in the upper sixties between somewhere between 62 and 68,000 a year. 
And, you know, that was kind of depressing. It was, it was very unmotivating to hear that, that, that he was, no matter how successful I was, if I opened up a hundred of these direct delivery places around the country, he was never going to pay me any more money. So I, I thought, well, okay, at least, at least I'm expanding, at least I'm growing. So I took it on and I started it for a year. And I did the first expansion, was, which was out to um, about 80 miles west of Chicago. We would, then it was to go into Iowa after that. But when I got out there and I started expanding, I started getting accounts. I was selling accounts. I was uh, getting the property for the trucks. You know, I had all of that going. And then I found out that he wasn't willing to do anything with the prices to, complete, to compete regionally, depending on where we were. Now, in Chicago, those truck drivers, they're Teamster Union right? So they're making, at the time, they were making about 23 bucks an hour, right? So you go into a non-union environment, if you don't lower your prices, um, you can't compete with other non-union fuel delivery trucks, you know? Um, and he wouldn't do it. And I, it, I, I, was, I was racking my brain. I was so frustrated. It, it, was, it was absolutely crazy because I was like, why won't he do this? This is nuts. And then I realized that he never had any intention of ever letting it succeed to begin with. Because had we adjust the prices so that we could be competitive, we would have succeeded very well. I mean, the one thing that we did was we had, we understood the delivery probably better than any other company that was out there at the time. And we were very good at what we did. Um, that company still, as far as I know, they're in charge of all the major on-site fuel deliveries around the Chicagoland area and emergency delivery. That's fire trucks, that's engines, that's hospitals, that's, you know, people don't realize how many things require an on-site fuel delivery, uh, you know, because you don't take a generator yeah. to a gas station, you know, and I didn't even know, like when I started with the company and I was here and, and the, the guy that was telling me about the opportunity, I said, what do you, what exactly do you do? I knew he came to the, to the food company and he filled the trucks and the refrigerated trailers. But he was telling me that their biggest, their biggest accounts were outside of the Union Pacific Railroad was um, construction equipment. And I was like, construction equipment? He says, yeah, when was the last time you ever saw a bulldozer pull into a gas station and get people? And I was like, <laughs> that's true. It makes sense. Fuck, man, I never thought about that, but I guess that's really true, isn't it? He's like, yeah, all these, all these big areas where they're breaking ground and, and, and building and all this stuff, roads, whatever, any kind of construction – they need on-site fuel delivery. So a truck has to go out there and fill all of that construction equipment. And, you know, in a major metropolitan area like Chicago, that's a constantly expand. I mean, in, there's the old joke in Chicago is there's two seasons. You have winter and construction. That's it, right? So it's massive. I mean, there, you know, back then, there would be anywhere from 50 to 70 trucks on the road during the day. And most of it was just filling construction equipment and generators. So it was a big business. It was a, it was a, it was, it was a big little business, but it was, but it was also very competitive because fuel is a commodity, right? So yeah. there's not big swings in fuel prices between one gas station or another, you know, a half a cent, the old saying is a half a cent is the best deal in town. If you can get a half a cent markup or, or decrease somewhere, you know, you're doing good. But when you have to charge superior prices because you're dealing in a union market, it's very different than if you go to a non-union city because you, well, can't keep, you can't keep paying the same, the same price. I'm curious why you pursued that in the first place if he had already told you that you weren't going to make any more money. Because I wasn't ready to walk away yet and start my own business. 
Okay. So I then you, so it sounds like you know a lot about that industry. Why did you decide to leave to start coaching? You could have done anything. Why was well, it coaching? Yeah. And I did a little bit. Like, so while I was doing, while I was working in the petroleum industry, I was also building a network marketing company. And that was my first kind of endeavor into any kind of an entrepreneurial uh, mindset or, or, or system of any kind. And it, it is for a lot of people. I mean, uh, a lot of people start off that way. They go from middle class or working class into something like that. And then they, they see that they have some kind of aptitude for it or whatever. They intrigues them and they want to go do something else on their own. So I started off that way. And the thing about it that I liked the most was the fact that there was no cap on your income. You could earn whatever you wanted. So that really excited me. So I started doing it and I was doing okay. I mean, I wasn't setting the world on fire, but I was doing okay. And there was something was out of place for me. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. And I was at a conference. Um, like there was 20,000 people at this conference for this company that I was, that I was uh, a, a direct sales for. And this woman who made about uh, $167,000 a month at the time. And this is mid nineties. This is 97, probably 98, maybe she's on stage and she's, and she's talking about the reasons people join network marketing multi-level. And she said, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, but if you're going to build a business, the number one reason you have to do it is because you love the business of network marketing. And I didn't love the business of network marketing. I love the idea of being able to make a lot of money, but I really yeah. didn't love the business of network marketing. So I decided, okay, I, that, was a, that was a wake up for me because I had to go from being this enthusiastic zealot for MLM to really kind of reining in my ego and going, what's the deal here? And being very honest. And I realized that I love the idea of business. I love the idea of making a lot of money. I've, I love the idea of creating a product or a service that would help people, but I really didn't love multi-level. So I didn't know what to do yet. So I was staying in it. <clears throat> and what the interesting thing was, was that for my downline, I was doing Saturday morning trainings at a restaurant. So I would bring in my distributors and I would do these trainings for them at this restaurant. And I found out that I really liked doing the trainings and the coaching. And I was also working with some people that weren't in MLM. They were just in regular business because they had asked me, how did you, how did you make this leap so fast? And I was telling them what to do as far as their own mindset and a few little other things. And they would turn their success around really quick. Now, I didn't think anything of it at the time until my mentor said to me, you'd be a really good coach and you would be really good doing what I do. And I was like, no, I can't do that. And he's like, but you're already doing it. So I didn't see myself as already doing it because I was comparing myself to him or somebody like Tony Robbins. But I thought about it for a while. And then he gave me an opportunity to teach his seminars. And that's how I got started in my own business. So I started doing that. And then in a very short period of time, I was teaching my own. Um, and then I, you know, we were in business. I was in business with him for a while. We had our own business. Uh, he, he and I went and trained and worked together for a few years. And then I just went completely on my own. So you did, you started out with Tony Robbins. No, was, I guess. Oh, was, you know, from the personal power tapes. Yeah. Like your first yeah. foray, I guess, into. Oh, totally. Yeah. Speaking yeah. out these other things. Um, so you listened to the Tony Robbins tapes. Did you go to an event? Yes. And then you got a coach. 
No, I did. I got it was years later that I got a coach. Okay. I didn't get a coach probably for about six years after that. But you had already started doing the MLM stuff and then you got a coach? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you were just kind of feeling out like, what else can I do to make money? Yes. Okay. Because I mean, I think this is something anybody who's been to one of your events or who's been to coaching events can relate to. It's kind of interesting to see your path where you're, you know, you're so far beyond that now, but we, you recognize so many people that come to you that are where you were once. Yeah. I mean, through that period of years that I was studying, I kept thinking to myself, what business could I start? And I kept, I had a block around this. Um, First of all, prior to the internet coming out, you have to realize that the, the vast amount of information that we have now wasn't then. So your experience was basically how you were raised and, and whatever you got to experience in life. There, you didn't see beyond that idea. Um, and I kept thinking, what kind of business could I start? And I did not want to, I'd like the only thing that I really knew kind of nuts and bolts at the time was the petroleum industry. And I did not want to do that. I did not want to start my own petroleum uh, delivery company. So I thought about a restaurant. I thought about a hot dog stand. I thought about a car dealership. I thought I was thinking about what I was seeing with my eyes, right? And what am I qualified to actually do? And what could I be pretty? Because I had a family. I had four kids. You know, I had a house. I had the whole thing. And I'm like, what can I do that I'd be relatively certain that I'm not going to trip myself up and we lose everything either. You know, I want to pick something that I'm pretty confident that I could pull off, even though I know I have a lot to learn. And I really wasn't coming up with anything. So then the network marketing became very appealing because you could start where you were and learn your way as you go. And then the idea was that you build it up to a certain level, you walk away from your job and you're, you're, you got this great MLM business. And then, of course, you, f- you find out along the way whether you like it or not or, you know, that type of stuff. Um, but I was also getting a lot of information from a lot of other people that were in a lot of different businesses and things, you know, a, a, a very big cross section of individuals. And then you go to these huge conventions that these companies have 15, 10, 15, 20,000 individuals, you meet all kinds of people. So I was getting a lot of different ideas. I was starting my mind. It was really beginning to expand my mind. Like, I'm so grateful that I did it because I don't know that I'd be here if I had not taken that intermediate uh, little little uh, venture there. But yeah, so then that led me to Bob. So that led me to my mentor, Bob Proctor, who was in network marketing. And so then, did, did you have to invest a lot in Bob oh, at the yeah, time? The, it was a ton of money. So how did you get around that? Because, you know, I've been in that chair before where... Charged it. You charged credit it. credit cards, a second loan on my mortgage. Yeah. So the deal was, in, so while I was with the MLM, we kind of got, I wouldn't say free coaching, but we got a lot of um, seminars at a discount. Um, there were uh, uh, things that he, trainings that he would do for the company that I worked for that you didn't have to pay for. So I was getting some that way. But when I got hardcore with him, the deal was I had to go to all of his events and I had to fly first class. So he was going to get me to really think like a millionaire. He needed to get me to, to, to desire more, to see a bigger picture, to really dream, to get outside of my box. And th- that's, when, that's when it really started to cost a lot of money. So I, was, you know, I, was, I had gone through a lot of money in my 401k. Um, the biggest thing was probably the second mortgage on the house, you know, because that was over 100 grand right there. 
anyway, so the, the idea then was to start my own business and start making this income, which exactly, that's exactly what I did from there. From so that point can forward. you take us through your thought process? Cause I know this is something that so many people go through when you wanted to use him, but you knew he was expensive. Was your attitude like, I don't care. I know I can make change with him and I can be successful. I'm going to find the money. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. Or did you have that other thought process that some people have? Like, I can't spend that. That's too much money. And, you know, maybe there's something else I can do. No, not at that point. I, I went through that when I went, when I bought Tony's tapes, when I went to the first seminar for Tony and maybe for a year after that. But what, by the time I had got up through the network marketing, I had become pretty good at investing in myself. Like I had to invest all through the network marketing and invest in the business. I had to invest in travel, going to the conferences. So I was already learning <clears throat> that you had to spend money in order if you to get this education. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't difficult to do it because I still wasn't making the amount of money that I was spending. I was, I was still upside down on it. I was using debt to cover most of it. The network marketing did make some money, so I was able to pay some of that down. But overall, I was still using debt to front it, right? So that was, that was, my, that was my capital investment in myself was, was credit cards and a, and a mortgage on the house. So you were married at the time. Yeah. Was, that, was your wife supportive of that? Yeah, she was in the company with me. She was in the network marketing company with me. They, we, were, we were a team at the time. You know, it was, uh, uh, it was fun. We had, a, we had a lot of fun doing it. Because you experience a lot of people in your travels, and I'm sure most of us do, that where you have a partner or a spouse, and they're not necessarily on that personal development journey with you. Right. They're not necessarily supportive, especially if they're not investing in themselves. It can seem like culture shock to them. Like you want to do seen, what? You want to take is. a mortgage it, out? It to- yeah, exactly. 100%. So 100%. is that something you typically see with your own clients? Very much so. Very, very much. And I think, and here's the reason. The reason is, is because most people get married for whatever reason that they come together to begin with. And most people do not sit down and discuss their values with their potential partner that they want to go through life with. They're just in love or they think they're in love and they start having babies or whatever. And they're like, fuck it, let's just do this thing. And, but that's really the truth. I mean, that's really how it happens. And then as people begin to grow, they start to find out more about themselves. They start to find what they actually do and don't like in their partner. And the older people get, the more chance, the, the more I think people start thinking about their future. Like, what am I really going to do? What do I really want? A lot of people find out that if they were sold a middle-class lifestyle growing up, that it's not all it's cracked up, cracked out to be, you know, so they start really thinking. And then if one person decides they want to grow and the other person doesn't, you've got a major issue on your hands, a major, major issue on your hands. Because the one that doesn't, everything that you need to do, you need to spend money, you need to study, you need to grow, you're exercising your independence, you're reaching out. It's scaring the shit out of that other person. And there's not a lot you can do about that because the only thing you can do is dumb yourself back down again, but you'll be miserable for the rest of your life. So it's either that person, you know, starts to study themselves and figure out what they want, or usually inevitably it ends up breaking up. I mean, it did for me that we, I mean, we did get to the point where we just had to admit we wanted two different things. Um, and then it was, you know, go our separate ways, but 
Well, was it that you wanted two different things or was it that you wanted to keep going with personal development and your spouse didn't? Pretty much. Yeah. That's two different things. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You're right. Yeah, it is. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. I have to think about that a little more. Um, But you must see that a lot with your clients. I mean, it's not really something you can coach around necessarily. You can't coach someone that doesn't want it. You can coach someone who does want it and they're in a relationship with someone who doesn't. But the person that doesn't, there's not much you can do there. You can't make them. They just don't. Yeah, I've heard you say you can't teach desire. No, you can't. You absolutely cannot teach desire. Desire is an inside job. You either It's either there, it's either fired up, or it's dormant and stuffed away and, and protected and person won't let it out. Yeah. Oh, man, that's, that's tough. Um, do you think that people were meant to be with the same person forever? Or I don't, I don't think that there's any, I don't think there's any meant to be. I think that that works for some people, and I think for others it doesn't. And then for other people, I think their 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 psychology or their personality is to be with multiple people at the same time. Like I see it work. Here's what I think: I think a person needs to be very honest about who they are as a person and what they desire, and then they need to be honest with whoever they're in a relationship with, especially a sexual or an intimate relationship. Like if you want to have multiple partners, it's fine as long as you're honest with your partner and your partner agrees with it. That's fine. If you don't, then don't, then don't later on say, I'm going to do this and not tell your partner. Like that's not okay. As long as we are honest and we're not in everybody's a consenting adult, then I'm for whatever it is that you want to do. Like do your, do you, that's, you know, that's the best thing. Yeah. So when you're in the, over the course of your time coaching people, you've, you see, have seen all kinds of problems. Are there certain ones that you just continually see over and over again? Yeah. So there's the relationship problems. There's uh, a big one is abusive relationships, toxic, really toxic people. We see that a, a tremendous amount. A matter of fact, so much so that when I first went through personal development, there was no mention. And actually, this is something that, that surprised me. For the seven years that I studied, I didn't see any mention of toxic relationships, abusive relationships, um, big marriage issues, you know, that, that were because of abuse. I never heard anything about any of that. And it was fascinating because I was exploring a lot of different personal development styles at the time, but I still never heard anything about it. And then when I started coaching, I started recognizing that people were actually in abusive relationships. So I had to do a lot of study around that so that I could coach people through it. And I had to learn about psychological cluster B disorders and, you know, the whole thing. Come to find out how many people are actually with somebody who is mentally challenged and they actually, they are actually abusive people. It's very rampant. It's, it's very, it's bigger than most people could possibly imagine. Wow. So, um, that is something that comes up a whole hell of a lot, uh, as, as a, as a major problem. And just to be clear for people listening, it's not just physical abuse. There's all no. kinds of other hidden abuses. Mental, verbal, physical, sexual, financial, spiritual, like it runs the gamut. I mean, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. What about some other ones? Like what? What are some other examples of things that you just kind of see coming up again and again with people? Well, what really holds 
Welcome back. They don't know who they are. So a, a question that we get all the time, and I've gotten for 20 years, is what's my purpose? A person will not find their purpose until they understand who they authentically really are because it's the authentic self that is in harmony with their true purpose, not the made-up self that they're carrying through their life. So if they don't actually do the work to find out who they are and they're really honest with themselves, they'll never find their purpose. So people that are, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a trip because people constantly ask me this question and my answer is always the same. When you stop resisting who you really are and you step into that fully, your purpose will show right up. It's right there. It's right in front of you, but you'll never see it being somebody else. And that's how we're raised. Most of us are raised in a family where we actually become what we're directed to become by our parents, not where our parents guide us into our own authenticity of what we truly desire from the inside out. So that journey becomes one that is clearly all on our own. And a lot of people embark on that journey once they've already set up quite a bit of responsibility in their life. So that becomes a challenge, right? Because yeah. now they have their true self who may want something vastly different than this life that they created with all this responsibility. So now it's like turning you know, the Titanic around in order to get back on there. But people do it every day. People do it every single day. You do it one step at a time. You do it by being honest with yourself and others. You do it by forgiving yourself and going and you slowly turn your life into the direction that you want. And within a couple of year or two or so, most people can get on a really good track. But how does somebody do that? How does some, if somebody's sitting there saying, but I think I am being my authentic self. What do you mean, David? You know, how do I find this authentic self that I am? So, if so, here's the thing: if a person doesn't know what they want, if they can't find their purpose, they're not being their authentic self because your authentic self knows what it desires and knows what it wants. Everybody desires something. So, if you're telling me that you don't know what you want, it's because you're not allowing your desires to speak to you. Somewhere along the line, you got a paradigm that says it's wrong or selfish or foolish or too risky to want anything. So you suppress it. And then it, you can't get to know yourself if you don't find out what yourself wants. So you have to be honest, you know, with yourself. So what I tell them is, I'm sorry, we disagree, but you're incorrect. You don't know what you want. You don't know who you are and you're not going to. So you're looking for an answer. The way that you're approaching looking for that answer is that you want to be safe. You want to know what it is and make sure that you're safe before you allow the vulnerable side of yourself to step into anything. And it doesn't work that way. Well, aren't we, aren't we really always going to be safe? I, th I think this might no. even be something you talked about recently. No, no, there's no such thing. There is no such thing as safety. Safety is an illusion. So we're not even safe now, even though we think we are. Well, are you, so how long have you been in the house with the coronavirus? Um, I don't know. What is it? It's seven weeks now, eight weeks. Okay. So th th there's something that happened that changed the lives of just about every single person on the planet. And it'll show you that we're not, in, we're not safe, that we're not in control. The only thing that keeps you safe is your individual choices around the fact that we have this virus running around out there, uh, that's extremely contagious, you know, between individuals. So but there's nothing that actually, there's no outside force that's going to keep you safe. There's no ideology that's going to keep you safe. It's by the, 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 the conscious use of your own intellect. That is what prevents you from walking in front of a bus or falling off of a building 
or just running up to a random stranger during a virus and getting too close where you risk the chance of getting the virus. I mean, knowledge and the proper use of that knowledge keeps you in the, in a, uh, a, a, a basically a prolonged experience of cause and effect with you understanding if I don't want certain effects in my life, I can't do certain causes. Right? Yeah. So if I don't want an effect that I don't want to experience, I need to know what the cause is of that effect so that I can make a choice not to do it. That's the only thing that keeps you safe. It's, it's consciousness. It's understanding. So do you think that pretty much everybody could benefit from having a coach? Because some of these things you just can't see on your own. Yeah. Yeah. There's nobody that becomes really successful in anything without some coaching or mentorship. Nobody. Right? The greatest musicians, actors, actresses, sports players, architects, doctors, attorneys, like everybody has some mentorship along the way. You're not, there's just too much to learn in too short of a period of time. If you have to figure it out all yourself, there's not enough time in your lifetime to be able to do it. Because the information, like when we have, when we have, well, you, you're an attorney, right? So you think about, all of the legal information that's out there, you couldn't possibly learn all of the illegal information in a lifetime. There's just no. too much and it changes too damn fast, right? And yep. there's too many aspects of it. But it's the culmination of thousands of people being an expert in areas and making the required changes to produce a legal body of work, right? It's not just one person. So if you want to specialize in something, you go to somebody who knows what that is and they teach you what others have taught them. So it's, you know, it's decades of information, um, you know, compressed into a short period of time and a stream of knowledge that you can understand and then experience and begin to master so that you can take it out and do something with it. You talk a lot about the subconscious mind and the conscious mind and the subconscious mind tells us how to think and the conscious mind tells us what to think. Did I get that right? That is correct. Can yes. you talk about that a little more? And, and I'm especially interested in where that comes from. It comes from our childhood and our parents, right? Yeah. So the subconscious mind is the part of us that gathers uh, beliefs and patterns and comprises them into a thought process and then a reaction process so that we can go through our life not having to think about every single thing that our body is doing, like all the different cellular changes and our heartbeat and our temperature and brain waves. And, you know, we don't have to think about all of those different reactions that our body does to be able to function. It's too many. We couldn't think of all those at the same time, nor can we think about all the different things that we have to do in a physical day, you know, in a a basis. You can't think about every individual move that you have to make driving a car and paying attention to everything that's going on around you, plus judge how fast you're going and staying in between other vehicles without killing people. So the subconscious mind's like this giant supercomputer that starts being programmed basically at birth. As soon as the mind starts to develop, which actually the heart develops first, which has its own intelligence, by the way, And then the brain starts to develop. It starts to get programmed with this information and it forms the foundation of how we think. So when our conscious mind starts to, and with our intellect starts to kick into gear around the age of seven, 
We have seven years of experience to tell us how to perceive what we're consciously thinking about. When we're using our intellect, when we have a perception, when we understand that, you know, this is a pair of glasses, right? Well, we know this is a pair of glasses because since we were two years old, somebody said this was glasses. So we know what it is and we know what it's for, right? Yeah. We don't have to think to ourselves, what the hell is that? Because somebody told us how to identify it and they gave it, gave us the meaning before we even had the ability to think or decide for ourselves what it is. But that's the way that it is for most of our, most of our information. We were taught how to think about generally everything prior to the age of seven. At age of seven, we start thinking, getting more information, but that information is then evaluated by the base information that we have in our subconscious mind, which tells us how to think. Now, all of that information, by the way, was given to us by other people. It wasn't decided on our own. So we literally take on the foundation of thinking as far as meaning goes based on what other, the, the meanings that other people have given to everything. So the big three in our life that kind of governs our moral behavior and our expression is God, sex, and money, right? So the, all of our values all around the world come from some form of religion. They're based in some form of, of spiritual practice. Um, sex is, is expressed and viewed very differently throughout cultures all over the world. However, it's the most intimate form of expression and it is, it is the most, it is the biggest energy in us and it's the creative energy. So if we have something like shame and guilt around our sex energy, chances are we're not going to express ourselves anywhere else in our life and money, which happens to be the thing that we all need to live any kind of a quality of life. We have a love hate relationship with. Yeah. So we, we know that we need money, but we're taught that too, money, too much money is bad, that money corrupts people, that money is the root of all evil. We hear all these condescending and contradicting messages around something that every one of us absolutely needs to be able to live life the way that we currently live it today. When we start to get our mind straight around those three ideas and really have them steeped in the truth of those three things and not the corrupt idea that religion has brought to it, or people that were wounded that were brought to it, or people that were violated in some way brought to it, or people that had their money stolen had brought to it, but really understand what it is from a healthy perspective, it infiltrates everything else. Like those three ideas really penetrate every other area of our life, and it allows us to start to see the truth everywhere else. So those are the big three and it kind of flows into everything else that we actually do. Yeah, I think um, you're right about those three big things. And I think it can be hard to actually see that because it's so embedded in our brains that we don't even realize the reason you think that you know wealthy people must have done something bad to make all their money or whatever it is, is because you were constantly taught that in some way when you were a kid and you've carried that through your lifetime. Is that pretty accurate? hundred percent. So how do we change that? The first thing is to become aware that the results that you're getting are not the results that you want. So you're nothing's going to change until you become dissatisfied with life the way that it is or, or, or a result, right? We can break it down to one result. I don't like this result. Okay. If I want to change it, I have to understand I produced that result. Well, if that's true, how did I do it? Now, that's a long way right there because a lot of people come from the mentality that they're victims in the world, that they don't have control over shit. 
if you believe that you're a victim in the world, you're not going to say, I take responsibility for this. How can I change it? I'm not going to blame anyone else. So it, it, it's a very long road for some people to get just to responsibility, which is the core principle of, 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 of empowering yourself to take control of your life, to create it however you want. You have to get to that point first. Once you get there, then it's, how did I do that? Well, yeah. you did it based on the ideas that were given to you by other people mixed with your experiences and your own conclusions and your reliving patterns of somebody else's life. So let's take a look at what those are. Let's replace those patterns with patterns that cause the correct results that you want in your life, which is no small feat, by the way. It's an ongoing process. You commit to doing that. And then one by one, you start changing your life in magnificent ways. I mean, everything can change in your life. You can go from a terrible relationship to an amazing relationship. You can go to a fucked up sex life to the most unbelievable, mind-blowing, expressive sex life ever. You could go from struggling with money and being broke and having it one day and not the other to being a multimillionaire with a thriving business and, and cash coming in beyond your wildest dreams. You could go from no friends or vindictive and judgmental friends to very open understanding and validating friendships and loving friendships. You know, like every, every area of your life can change, but you're the one that has to change it and you have to be willing to put in the work, which means you're going to have to study. Nobody gets there without study. Yeah. And you have to be able to um, see parts of yourself that you don't like. You've got this wonderful <laughs> quote on your wall in your office. And I always screw up the quote. Do you know the, the remember the quote off the top? Oh, from of your head? Val. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my mentor Bob Proctor, he, one of his mentors was a was a um, a great Canadian by the name of Leland Val Vandewal. and Val used to say that. Uh, let's see if I can get this straight now. the 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 amount of success that we achieve in our life is directly proportional to the amount of truth we can accept about ourselves without running away. It's so true. And I remember the first time I heard that. And, and by the way, I've been following you since January 2017. So it's been a little while. And sometimes you do yeah. need to hear this stuff again and again. And you kind of start to get it. It's like watching a movie over and over again. Yeah. You, you pick up little things you didn't see the last time. Um, but, you know, I think I understood that quote intellectually but I really got it over time is that it really can be hard sometimes to hear things about yourself or Very much so. things about yourself that maybe are a little less than flattering or, or so. actually, or to even to realize that you are the, the cause of whatever problems you have in your life. Well, you know, something that you're, you're making a point that's really actually amazing. If we think about it for a second, why would it be so difficult to hear something about ourselves it's not flattering. Like maybe we're an asshole, right? So if let's say you're an asshole and somebody keeps telling you, hey, you're an asshole, right? So you look at yourself and you go, yeah, you know what? Those things that I'm doing, that, and that's an asshole. That's what an asshole would do, right? Why is that so hard for people to look at? Well, it's a very good question because if you can get to the bottom of that question, you can basically change anything in your life. It's the resistance to accepting the fact that you might be being a jerk, right? Or you might be ignorant to something, or you might not be good at something. It's the resistance to that honesty that keeps people stuck forever. And the, the, the reason for it is, 
is that most people don't realize that we have something called self-esteem or a self-image that is basically controlling the internal way that we view ourselves and allows us, it it basically determines how we're going to show up in life. If we think that there's inherently something wrong with us, then we will guard that. But in the guarding of that, it doesn't allow that part of us to grow. So what we end up doing is projecting all of that insecurity from that place onto our outside world. Now, a person might think to themselves, well, why would I, why would I guard that? Why would I think uh, something's inherently wrong with me? Because almost everywhere on the globe, people are raised in a way where they're introduced to shame and guilt as a way of manipulating their behavior so that they will behave or get in line when they're children. And shame basically says there's something wrong, fundamentally something wrong with me. And we hear it all the time. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be embarrassed about what you did. Like we, we hear it, you hear it in movies, you hear it in music, you hear it in the media, you hear it from your parents, you hear it from the church, you hear it everywhere. What's interesting is that children aren't born with shame. There's no shame and no guilt born with a child, right? Yeah. They don't have any body shame. They don't have any behavior shame. They don't have any of that. It's instilled in them. And the way that it gets instilled in them is that kids are vulnerable. They need their parents' acceptance, their love, their validation. And when they don't get it, it's painful. So it's painful in a way, and parents use it painfully in a way to correct a child's behavior. If I can create pain in this child's life, maybe they'll stop doing what they're doing. It's driving me crazy uh, or, or whatever it is they need to do. And they'll get in line. You know, They'll get in line with the program and they'll start behaving themselves. So the idea is let me create pain so that they will get in line with the idea. Well, when you use shame and guilt to do that, then you instill into that child's mind that there's something wrong with them. So now I have a fundamental belief that there's actually something wrong with me. And of course, children rarely change their behavior the first time they're they're directed to do so. So they hear shameful projection coming at them constantly. I mean, if a parent's going to use shame, they'll use shame the whole the child's whole life, the whole 20 years that they're raising that kid. Oh yeah. Shame will be in everything. So they get a, you know, and then you get it in religion, you get it in schools, you know, it, it's a very easy form of manipulation and they just indoctrinate the kid with shame. So then the quality of their life depends about how much shame did they have to digest as a child. Well, I'm 45 and I still get the guilt trips, <laughs> <laughs> but I can respond to them a little better now. Yeah. Um, so as you've gone through this journey yourself, how old were you when you started having kids? Uh, so my wife, um, uh, when we got married, she had a two-year-old little girl. So I hit right from, the, from, from our marriage. We got married when uh, I was 22, so that's 1988. And my son was born in June of 89, so right off the bat. So I was 22, 23 years old when my first two kids were there. So now that you have the benefit of hindsight and all the learning that you've had over the years, would you say that you would have parented differently? A hundred percent. Knowing what you know now? A hundred percent. And here's another thing. So my oldest daughter was born in 1986. My son was born in 1989. I have two other children that were born in 96 and 97. 
Okay. So basically 10 years apart. The two oldest ones were raised in a very different environment in their first few years than my two second ones. I was already steeped in changing myself by the time the other two were born. And when they started, you know, when they were little girls, they had a totally different experience in their childhood. So by the time, by the time my, my, uh, my two youngest kids were say eight, nine, 10 years old, my two oldest ones were adults. You know, they were grown. That whole experience it was even different as far. I'm mean, like, I was a multimillionaire when my two youngest ones were that age. I didn't have a pot to piss in when my two oldest ones were that age. You know, I could barely pay my rent. We got thrown out of the house. You know, we got our car repossessed. I mean, it was a fucked up time in my life. So two very different messages. Now, having said that, for whatever reason, because I think my kids have always been very open. We've had a very close relationship. They're all doing very well. Like they all have adjusted those things. And of course they do have things that they're going to work on for the rest of their life that I gave them that was fucked up and that their mom gave them that was fucked up because we never, we're never perfect. We always pass on something to them that has, that they have to grow through. Just like when you and I were kids, we got stuff passed on to us. It's now our challenge to to overcome those limitations of whatever our parents gave us when we were kids. So I think I asked you the last time, how do we not fuck up our kids? I mean, if there's a couple of, you know, rules we could follow. So here's the, so here's the thing you have to understand. So first of all, a person really needs to take a step back when they ask that question, because you're not the only one that influences your kid, right? You do influence your kid. But there's a lot of other influences out there. And you can never take away the idea of the individual personality that your children have. They all have their individual personality. That's why you'll have two kids raised in the same home. You know, you'll have one, let's say, will be a doctor and another's a drug addict, right? Like, how the fuck did that happen? They're both yeah. raised in the same environment, basically the same thing. And they're at their polar opposites of each other in life. It's just the way that it is. Everybody has their own cross to bear in their life. So the, I, I think the idea is that it's some very fundamental things. You love your children. You validate your children. You teach them responsibility. You teach them individuality. You teach them to make choices on their own. You don't do things for them. You allow them to make mistakes and learn from the mistakes. You don't shame and guilt them over things that are mistakes. And you have patience, you know, and try to teach them principles that are based in truth and prosperity and treating their fellow human being in a, in a very good way and encourage them to find what they enjoy in life and what they want to do. And I also think you teach them hard work. Let because them be they who they are. Work, they're screwed, huh? I'm sorry, well, hard work? Yeah, hard work. If you, don't, if you don't give your kids a good work ethic, they'll be fucked. Well, That's one you... of the hardest things to overcome. If you're yeah. lazy because you, nobody made you work, you never developed a good work ethic, it is so hard to turn that around. You can turn it around. I've seen people do it. I did it, but it is, it's difficult. It's, it's really difficult. It, that's probably the second biggest question that I get from people. How do I get myself to do the work to be successful? It's like, listen, if you can't get your ass off the couch to do the work, you've got more problems than being successful. You know, I mean, you have to really rebuild trust with yourself. You have to learn how to be your word. You have to build a work ethic. You've got to change your value system. You have to make yourself do it. You got to play hardball with yourself. It's nobody's going to sprinkle pixie dust or wave sage over your head. And all of a sudden you're going to have this incredible work ethic. 
and the results don't come any other way. You've got to put in hard work. You don't have to make it hard. You don't have to suffer, but you have to diligently work, focus, work at what it is that you want to get a result. And you just had this whole topic on a podcast episode, in case anybody wants to go back and listen to it. How do you get yourself to do things? I have heard you in the past say things like, you don't want it bad enough. Yeah. Does that apply there? And you yeah, actually yeah. had Bob Proctor say that to you once. No, right? it wasn't Bob. It oh, wasn't. It, wasn't. Bob. it was so, but, but it was around that time. So it was when I was working, when I was working with the network marketing company, I hit a plateau for about, I don't know, six, eight months. And I had been doing every, so when you go to work for one of those companies, they give you a plan, a strategy. Like, you know, every single thing to do that the successful people tell you to do. And your job is to master that. And if you master it, you'll probably have pretty good results. So I was getting good results, but I hit a plateau and I could not get past this plateau for anything. And I was by the book, I was doing what they told me to do. I couldn't figure it out. So I decide I I had heard somebody say, if you if you want to become successful and you need advice, go to somebody that's miles ahead of where you are. So I the, one of the main trainers was the guy who was at the top of my downline. He made like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month. He was he had tens of thousands of people under him. He was speaking at one of the convention centers outside of Chicago and I, and I was going, so I was like, okay, I'm going to meet this guy and I'm going to ask him what's going on and I'm going to do exactly what he tells me to do. I wait around all day long. He comes off the stage from speaking. There's several thousand people there. I work my way up there to ask him the question. I, I lay, I lay it out for him. I'm like, I need to do this clear, concise so he can understand it, but he's going to hear it. So I lay out what's going on, what my problem is. What do I do? He looks me right in the eye and he says, you don't want it bad enough. And he turns around and walks away. And I'm like, you motherfucker. Like, <laughs> I could kill you right now. I was so livid. Like, all this stuff started coming up for me. I was pissed. I didn't think he cared. You know, like, all these stories come up. I left. I, went, I got my car. I started driving home. And about halfway home, when I calmed down a little bit, uh, that voice in my head said, what if he's right? Like, let's just consider this for a second, right? Don't be, don't be such an arrogant fuck. What if he's, what if he's actually right? Where would, that, where would there be evidence of that in my life if he was correct? I don't want it bad enough. Because I'm thinking, man, I'm doing everything. How the hell could he possibly say that to me? He has no idea how bad I want it. So then what I realized was that he was 100% right. And I was stopping in two areas. One, where other people would object but also internally where I didn't have the courage or the confidence to overcome their objection. Now, I thought I was doing that, but it became very evident to me because I said to myself, well, if that's happening, where am I stopping? So I started working my results backwards. And I'm like, okay, so you have these results and you have all these people, they're not doing anything. And why are they not doing anything? Because they have these excuses and, and then what? So then you don't, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I don't do anything with those excuses. Like I just accept it and go the other way. I'm not challenging anything. I'm not being a leader there. So I, I went home immediately and I went and sold somebody that like three days before they had told me that they couldn't buy. So I went, I went over and I got my product and I went over to their house and I insisted on a conversation and I sold them. I wasn't leaving their house until I, till I broke through. And I never went back on that. I mean, so it was a huge breakthrough moment for me. So huge what do you think that was about though? Why were you stopping? 
Was it part like of a confidence? Like, well, it was lack of confidence and ignorance. So I never had to. I never had to really. I was never in a situation where I had to really challenge somebody that was telling me no, based on a false premise. Right. So here's what I mean. So um, you're in network marketing. I'm doing sales. People would say, "I don't have the money. I don't have the time." Whatever other excuse they would give me, I just took it for granted that that was the truth. I didn't realize that it, in most cases, it's not the truth. It's a cover-up for something else. And I didn't know how to counteract that. I didn't know how to, have a, how to have a logical conversation to help somebody move past that idea. When it became very obvious to me that they had the money and they had need for the product, like why would you not buy, right? It didn't, I just couldn't get this through my head. And I was like, oh, it's not them, it's me. I don't have the skill set and the confidence to walk them past that objection. So uh, that's where I'm stopping. I'm backing down and saying, okay, well, I'll check back with you in six months or a year or whatever. And I would just go away. So the, the people that could have actually helped my business grow because they had more influence than I did, I was not able to influence them even in the first step. So I was building a business with people that were less effective than I was. And the whole idea was recruit up, find people more effective than you. And well, I really wasn't doing that to a large degree. I had a few people that I did that with, but not many. So I had to learn how to become really good at that, which required me to be bold. It required me to be confident. It required me to be able to articulate a conversation that was intelligently received, that, that had um, uh, solid reasoning in it, you know, where a person would consider something different. It, that was my next growth step. So that's, would you say that's really where you learned sales? Um, I, so sales for me, sales has been in my life my whole life. I didn't, it took me a long time to realize that, but it has. I think that it was the next step in sales for me because I even went to a step further than that when I started my own business. I experienced a little bit of it again and um, I did a challenge, like I, I, I had a, a coach who challenged me to do a hundred conversations in seven days because I was, I was running into fear again. Like I thought I broke through this once and for all, but apparently I didn't because about two months into me starting my my company, after I sold my first seminar, I couldn't pick up the phone and I couldn't pick up the phone because I was calling, I was cold calling. I was calling strangers. These were people I did not know. And the seminar was filled with people that I did know. Right. So now I'm calling strangers and I can't get myself to pick up the phone. And I realized that um, I was really afraid that they would tell me no. And if they told me no, it would verify that what everybody told me about not to start my own business. And then I would get laughed at and I would be humiliated. So it was like this whole triage of down into the dumps. Yeah. So I'm like, I got to get past this right now because I need to earn, I have to earn money every month. I can't afford to even have one month go by without earning money. So I knew somebody who was just a, a boss-ass sales trainer, and I got on the phone with her, and I said to her, what do I do here? What's, what's the situation? She said, you, she said, are you serious about breaking through this? And I said, I'm 100% serious. She said, then you need to do this exercise. And I said, what's the exercise? She said, you, call, you have 100 conversations in seven days, and you stay on the phone till either you get a credit card or they hang up. So either they buy or they hang up. You don't, you don't back away from anything. And so I did it. I did it. And it totally changed my life. Like was, it was that painful at first? I, well, before I even did it, I wanted to reach through the phone and rip her ears off. Like I was so <laughs> pissed that she gave me that exercise. And, uh, 
but it, you know, I mean, she was really great. I mean, she was at one time, she was really big in the Tony Robbins corporation back in the early days. Um, it was part of the sales training that they used to put those sales people through back in the day. I don't know if they still do, but back in the day they did. And, and, and I knew her very well. So, uh, she gave me, that was the exercise she gave me. And it, you know, I, I didn't like it at first. I accepted that's what I had to do, but I was determined on breaking through. And I knew that that philosophy of doing a lot in a short period of time would reprogram your mind. Most people, they make the mistake of when, especially when they're afraid of sales, I'm going to make a couple of calls a day. And a year later, they're still struggling with making phone calls. If you make a massive amount in a short period of time, you will reprogram yourself. You will break through the fear and you will also learn new techniques. Like you, it will just become natural because normally as human beings, we pick up on patterns, right? So you start to go through pattern recognition. You start to hear the same excuse over and over again, and you start to put it with the same reasoning and the same blah, 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 and you start to figure it out. And that's where I really taught myself sales because I sat down with a legal pad every day, 15 hours a day, and did nothing but make sales phone, make uh, sales calls. Cold calls, like cold calls. Yeah, that's hard. And this day and age, I think things are a little different. We don't have to just go through the phone book anymore. But just, we still do we still do sales calls and a lot of people still do cold calling. Well, the whole idea is that you're able to approach anybody and start a conversation and then move it to a sales conversation if it's appropriate. You know, I would I practiced this day and night, night and day everywhere I went. And the idea was I was, so I was like, okay, what is my opening line? My opening line is, uh, do you love what you're doing? You know, it's like if I was in a gas station, right? I'd be going to a gas station, pay for the gas, and the clerk behind the counter, I'd be like, how you doing? Do you like what you're doing? How long have you been here? Uh, is this a second job? Is this a first job? What, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Do you really like it? And they'd be like, what the hell? But people would open up. They would start talking to me. I would do it with waiters and waitresses at restaurants. I would do it in hotels with, with staff at hotels. I just got very, and as I did it with, strangers in the elevator. Like, why are you here? Why, why are you at the hotel? Do you like this hotel? What do you do for a living? Really? You do that? Is that cool? Do you like that? Is that what you're going to do for the rest of your life? And I would just continue to have those conversations where I would do a fast, deep dive into a person's reality and then be able to, to like change their, what they were perceiving very quickly. And they would either buy or they wouldn't. That sounds fun. I sold a cop <laughs> that was giving me a ticket one time, a boxed program from Bob Proctor. It was in my trunk. You asked him if he liked what he was doing? Yeah. And he said no? Yeah. Wow. That's and I said, you, I said, I said uh, so how long are you going to keep doing it? And he's like, well, I'm, he's like, what else am I going to do? And I said, that, I said, that's a problem. If I could show you how you could change that, would you, would you be interested in learning how? And he's like, well, it depends on what it is. Then I had to let it, then I had to, to get him to let me open my trunk, which was a whole nother conversation. But uh, I sold Did him you get a, a gold, ticket. I sold him a was it a goal achiever? No, I didn't get a ticket. Um, it was either a goal achiever program or a, or Bob's Winner's Image program. It was one of the two that I that I sold. It was like eighty nine bucks. Has your um, sales approach changed over the years? Not really, not really. It I starts. Off, I usually I usually approach it from from like the, well, I guess it depends on what the situation is that I'm in, that I'm going to go into a sales mode. But generally, it's like this. What, what is it that you really want? And then I start a conversation from there. And in a very short period of time, if you're really serious about making a change, you'll buy whatever it is that I'm offering. You just will. 
Would you say that when you're doing sales that you, as the salesperson, you should be asking more questions than providing answers? hundred percent. Sales is all about asking questions. And you should be doing less talking. Correct. It's not about how much you know. It's not about how big your product is. It's not about how much service you you have. It's not about how much off you're going to give them. A sales conversation is really a coaching conversation, okay? It's a conversation in which a skilled salesperson leads the potential client down the road so that they can get clear in their mind to make a decision to buy. And usually that means a decision to change something. So it depends on whatever the person's buying. But a sales conversation, if a guy's buying an automobile, is no different than a sales conversation for an attorney or a sales conversation for a doctor or a sales conversation for a plumber or a sales conversation for self-improvement. The person has, you find out, does the person have a need or a desire for your product or service? If they have a need or a desire for that product or service, is the urgency to purchase that product or service there also? If those two things are there, then the only other obstacle left is generally money. If the person wants it bad enough, if the urgency is strong enough, they'll find the money for whatever it is because people find money for dumb shit all day long. Yeah. I've done it plenty of times. (laughs) Everybody has. You and me both. So, so would you agree that you, whatever you're selling, the person has to want it, even if they need it? Because we don't always want what we need. 100%. If it's not fun, right? Like I sell divorce. I mean, how many people want that? It you know, depends which well, side you're do. on. <laughs> if you're the one initiating, if you're yeah. not the one initiating, you don't want it. Right. But you, you need it. So they're still not going to buy it unless they want it. Yeah. So that conversation is to go. So what you want to do when somebody needs something, you need to turn the need into a want, right? Because listen, here's the thing. If, if you sold something people wanted, then basically what you're doing is you're selling milk, bread, and eggs, right? I know I need, I know I want milk, bread, and eggs and toilet paper. I go to the store. I don't need somebody to sell me on milk, bread, and eggs, right? Um, but if there's something that I need, but I haven't moved it to where I want it yet, that's where the sales conversation comes into play. Yeah. Well, we could talk about that all day and I know you do sales training, right? Yeah, sure do. So people can look you up for that too. So when you were younger, what was your paradigm? Around what? (laughs) That's a loaded question. So we have a bunch of them. It's not like we just have one. Yes. We have a bunch of them. Okay, so you could have a paradigm around sex and a paradigm around money and all of that. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was, it was, so my paradigms were working class, middle class ideology, mediocrity, um, a little victimization, and a lot, a lot of uncertainty around values and, and religion that made things that seemed perfectly natural like sex and money and, ambition wrong, you know, that that made it just flat out wrong, uh, with huge consequences for it being wrong. So, you know, I was raised Catholic in Chicago, middle-class working class, broken family, trauma in the family. Um, and, and that was the, that was the mindset. So I, I needed to dig my way out of a lot of different ideologies that I learned. Many of them were based in complete superstition, and some were a mix of some truth, pseudo-truth, and pseudo-psychology, and just flat-out, you know, uh, victimization, like victim thinking. There's a lot of victim thinking in the middle-class mindset, you know, just it's loaded with it. 
Yeah. Well, how do you recognize that? I think it's hard sometimes to recognize when you're in the victim thinking. It's, it's very easy once somebody points it out to you. Do you take 100% responsibility for everything in your life or do you blame it on other people? I think sometimes I blame it on other people. I'll say you if only so-and-so. And I didn't recognize it. And you're right. Somebody pointed it out to me. And at first I was like, I'm not a victim. You know, how dare you? Because yeah. I, I don't like that word and I never want to be characterized that way. But when I thought about it, you know, well, if so-and-so would just do X, Y, and Z, then this would work. Part my plan would work perfectly. And then right. I realized I was blaming that other person for it. 100%. So, 100%. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, the thing is, is that... Av- in, at least in my experience and, and for, I would say for most of my clients at first there's um, it's a little difficult sometimes to let go of that victim thinking because you want to blame people for things that hurt. You want to blame people for things that were wrong. You want to blame people for inadequacies that you don't want to admit about yourself. However, you have not experienced the freedom and the power that comes with removing that blame and taking responsibility, which is not blaming yourself. Blame is a judgment, right? So it's not about blaming yourself. It's about understanding that if you, even if you didn't consciously create something, you unconsciously participated in the creation of it just by being there, right? I don't care if you made a wrong turn down a dark alley and you were jumped, right? You're the one that made the fucking turn, right? Yeah. So if you can accept responsibility for that, you can stay more conscious about your decisions and you can start making decisions that allow you not to have those kinds of consequences in your life, but literally the polar opposite where things go great all the time. I, I remember I was uh, back in like 1996, I'm sitting in a seminar, Bob Proctor's teaching and he's, and he's telling about his life. He's telling the story about his life and how fucked up his life was when he was young and how it changed. And he said, you know, it's funny. You go through this experience where it just keeps getting better. And you think to yourself, it can't get any better. And then it gets better. And this goes on year after year, decade after decade. And I'm, and I'm like, I don't know if I believe that. Like, I, like I'm, I'm with you up to this point, but I don't know that I really believe that. And it, was, and it showed me how limited of a viewpoint my parents had about life. Because I realized that I had got that from them, you know, mostly my mother more than anything. And, but when I stepped into what Bob taught and I really incorporated it in every area of my life, I realized he was 100% right. It just fucking keeps getting better. And it's not that there's not problems and it's not that there's not challenges and there's not that there's not times where you're grieving, somebody died or, or marriage ends or you lose a child or a dog or, you know, what you, that's life. Yeah. How you show up to it is completely different, you know? And for the most part, it does, it, it keeps getting better and better and better. The coronavirus hit. We knew it was a big thing. Um, I didn't think for a second about, you know, how awful this is. I thought about what do we need to do to change and pivot? And we've never stopped making sales. The company is still growing. We're doing it different than we did, you know, two, two and a half months ago. But we're just continuing to move forward. You know, it's a it's a challenge. So it's like we're grateful for it. Let's change. Let's help people along the way, which we've done tremendously. Like we bought masks for people in New York for the frontline medical people. We did a we did a whole eight week program on how to overcome the 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 psychological challenge of this and then incorporate it into your business and your life. That was a huge hit. And um, 
and, and try to have some fun, you know, along, along the way. That's awesome. I love that. So you always seem like you're cool as a cucumber. And I've been to so many of your events and, you know, you talk a lot about the, some of the things we're talking about today. And I'll just think to myself, doesn't David ever just, you know, have a moment where like maybe you're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off and you just flip them the bird. Like, do you ever have moments where you you just get pissed off and Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I would flip somebody the bird anymore so much anymore. I don't know, who knows, maybe I would. Um I don't get pissed off that often. You know, it doesn't it it really doesn't I don't get pissed off that that often. Um there will be things though where I'll get pissed off and sometimes I need to get pissed off, you know, like it's, there, sometimes it's, it's not necessarily pissed off at someone. It's about a condition maybe that I let go too long around something, or I wasn't holding someone accountable enough to something or whatever. And then I'll get pissed off about it. And it's, and it's like, okay, so I need to fix this, but it's not pissed off like woe is me or bad them, or, you know, it's not like a, a judgment thing, but sure. Yeah. There's things that happen where you get angry. I remember when when uh, when my stepfather died after my mother died, um, his family came in and really like there were some people, not so much his family. I shouldn't say that. There were some there were some lingering friends on the fringe that came in and tried to take all of his money and stuff. Uh, really on underhanded shit. I got really pissed off. Like I was smoking pissed that there were these people that were trying to take advantage of him when he was dying of cancer. That was one thing I was I was like furious about but i handled it in a way where it's like let's do this legally let's do this so that it's tight and we get these people out and it was a lot of hard decisions you know and it was a lot of having to outthink what you know basically these criminals were trying to do you know but yeah sure there's things that happen you get pissed off i think it's totally fine as long as anger is not directed inward or directly at someone else in a way that it's destructive anger is a good thing anger can can save your life yeah. Okay. Because maybe I had sort of a, a misguided perception that someday I'll be like David. I'll never get mad at everything. All my paradigms will go away, and I'll always make the right decision. So that's well, I don't always make the right decision. All my paradigms aren't gone, and I don't. I don't not get angry. I don't. Anger doesn't control my life. It used to. Like I was anger. I you know when I before I changed my attitude, I was angry about everything. Um, but it wasn't. I mean, that wasn't, that's the way that I was behaving, but it really wasn't true. It was, I felt out of control and I didn't know what to do. I was frustrated. Um, and it just showed up as anger. But the thing is, is that if you think about things that make you angry, anger is usually a defense around something that you fear that will be lost. And you don't have any control around it. Most times that's what it is. It's a defense around losing something, whether it's personally, your life, somebody else, something like that. So it's a defense mechanism. Um, and like I said, when that defense mechanism kicks in, sometimes that defense mechanism could save your life. Like if somebody jumps you in an alley, if you get angry, you you might be able to get away from that or, or, or beat the person up or kill them or something to save your own life. In a situation like that, it could save your life. But it could also get you to pay very close attention to when something's going on and it'll, it'll allow you to change it as long as it's not consuming, you know, you don't want it to consume your life. 
it should it should have a little sprinkle here and there when appropriate times like any other emotion but not be consuming in any way and never directed in anybody you okay know? that's good to know so if i could pry into your personal life a little bit nothing too salacious um what are some habits that you have that you do consistently every day i'm grateful every day um, gratitude is something that, that I practice all the time. And it's there, you know, when I say it's a habit, it's a habit that I don't have to tell myself to do. I just automatically do it. So I found that once you start doing the mindset work for such a long period of time, it becomes the way that you think it becomes the way that you see the world. When the coronavirus first hit, I was kind of like, what the fuck is going on? But as soon as I realized what it was, it was, I went into grateful. What am I grateful for? I'm grateful for my family. Grateful we're healthy. Grateful we have the, a way to be able to pivot during this. Like it was all gratitude because if you don't go into gratitude, generally you go into resentment. If you go into resentment, you don't see opportunity and you become a prison of your, of your own thinking. So, you know, gratitude is one. Um, I'm very focused on working. I'm very focused on learning and studying. Uh, those things make up a huge portion of my life by design, right? So I like I've designed it that way. I am a very curious person. I love to learn. I love to learn in any scenario that I'm in. So like if I'm go like if I go to a movie, right? I'm always observing. I'm always learning about what's going on, what people are doing, what does the movie mean? Looking for different applications or realizations about something. It's just the way that I. It's just the way that I think. So, so how do you structure your day? Do you kind of do the same thing every day? Cause I know you read a lot and you make time uh, to study, yep. but you're so busy with your podcast and coaching and doing events. And I'm just wondering, do you have a schedule that you follow? How do you I do all that? Every single day. So my calendar is created for months ahead of time, sometimes over a year ahead of time. Um, and what ends up happening is that like one of the first things that we'll do in, in, in the calendar is I'll put down like say vacations, time off with the family, different things that I'm personally going to do. Then we put down say like big events, like the big events of the year and then start working backward from there so that it comes down to every single day is calendared. Like for the next three weeks, I can tell you everything that I'm doing every day from the time I get up till I go to bed, including the weekends. Um, and, it, and, and all of that stuff is scheduled. So it's not something that I even have to think about when I get up. But, and that's including my time off. It's including leisure time, recreational time. Reading and stuff, I primarily do audiobooks these days. On occasion, I will do a hardcover book. If I really like the audiobook, I'll buy a hardcover for my library. But I can get through many more books faster listening to them on audio. And I listen to them in the little blank spots during the day, like between a coaching call, if I'm on an elevator, if I'm running to the restroom, if I, you know, if I'm traveling, time when I'm not actually doing some physical work or something, I will listen to the book. And I'm usually, I've usually got several books going at the same time. I'm just a voracious reader. So there's that, you know, I listen to podcasts, but those things I do in my off time. I don't do that during productive work hours. Productive work hours are, you know, I get up in the morning. I'm usually up between five and seven, depending on how late I go to bed. I need about seven hours of sleep. I can go on a little bit less, but just to keep it, you know, regulate correctly about seven hours. Um, I get up. I usually go for a walk 
Uh, I'll listen to a book while I'm going for a walk. I'll take the dog out for a while. Uh, then I get ready. You know, like I, I take a shower. I'm listening to a book the whole time I'm doing that. I'm getting dressed. I'm listening to a book the whole time I'm doing that. I know what my, on my, what's on my calendar because I looked at it the night before. Um, then, I will, then I will be ready to go in and check my email, say an hour, hour and a half before my first call or whatever it is that I have to do. So that'll start around 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm ready, I'm ready to go for that. And then it's just one thing after another throughout the day. And when I'm done, then I have a schedule of am I doing research for a podcast? Am I coming up with content for a podcast or a product or a talk that I'm doing or a speech that I'm giving? So that stuff is when I use like a lot of creative time to, to do those things. So that's usually about anywhere from four to six hours once I get off of my normal work day. I usually spend time, you know, doing those, doing those things. It sounds like you're so regimented. Do you ever have days where you look at your calendar and you're like, fuck, I don't feel like doing any of that today? That happens. It happens. It happens. It, it usually something like that happens if something goes wrong in the week. For whatever reason, I don't get a couple of good, like I have a couple of terrible nights sleep for whatever reason, like it could be anything. Um, and then I'm tired. Then yeah, like a, like a whole day of coaching calls, you know, we'll look, you'll yeah. look at it and it'll, it'll be exhausting looking. But I usually stay pretty tight to to what my calendar is. And I have like, not everybody knows where it is in my calendar, but I have some wiggle room. Like if something goes wrong and I need a little extra time off or I need a little extra sleep or whatever, I can, I can squeeze that in, in places. I, I know enough to leave a little bit of cushion here and there in case I need it. And if I don't, then it turns out to be really productive extra study time or, or creation, content creation time. So nothing, nothing is really wasted in that time frame. So you said you're always listening to a few books. What are you listening to now? And can you also tell us what podcasts you listen to regularly? Uh, well, I listen to Rogan regularly, not all the way through, but I'll spot check uh, who Joe's listening to. Um, right now, I am listening to Michael Jordan, The Life by Roland Lazenby. And I also got this I got in a hardcover book which is called Fix This by Michael Michalowicz. So those are two books that I'm into right now. Plus I have a couple of books that I switch back and forth with that are older reads. I just, I just listened to Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking Again, which is a phenomenal book. It's really a phenomenal book. I mean, she takes you through this course the whole year she documented after her husband died. Yeah, and, I've heard of that uh, book. Yeah, it's a it's a it's really it's a really a great book that deals with grief. So yeah, I mean, like I always have a few books going. Now podcasts, um, I will listen to I will listen to Brian Rose. I will listen to Gary V. I will listen to Robbins on occasion. I'll listen to um, uh, Rogan, uh, Sam Harris. Uh, I, I was listening to Jordan Peterson's before he got sick. Um, I will, I will, another thing that I do with podcasts is this. If I'm researching someone, I will check their name and see what podcasts they're on and then listen to those podcasts. So they may be on Tim Ferriss or, you know, whoever's podcast. And then I'll be listening to that person because I want to hear, their story. I want to hear what they're doing, what they're talking about. So I'll do that quite frequently. And do you binge watch anything on Netflix? 
occasionally. Yeah, there's some shows that I like. I like uh, uh, Billions, which is on Showtime. Um, I'm not currently watching anything on Netflix right now. I just got finished watching uh, Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, that was on ESPN for, what was it, five Sundays in a row or something like that. There were some shows, like occasionally there'll be a show. Like I was, I watched Homeland for all the years that Homeland was on that just finished up this year. Uh, trying to think what Good else. Good one. Do you generally like things that are more, that are dark or comedy? I'm not really into comedy. I'm not into sitcoms. I like psychological things. I like thrillers, some drama, some action. Um, generally stuff that makes you think. Yeah, I agree. Me too. Well, thank you for your time, David. I could do this all day, but um, based upon what you just said, you probably have something else that you have to do in about five minutes. I absolutely do. So thank you so much for being generous with your time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. And I'm glad we were able to get this done, right? Me too. Me too. I was starting to wonder, is the universe trying to tell us something? Telling us that this is the right time to do it. That's all it was telling us. That's right. Well, thank you. I think I know you a little better now, and I can't wait to see you. Um, When are we doing Art of Success Summit now? In October? Yeah, October. Good. Let's cross our fingers that COVID will be a history by then. and Seriously. We'll be back to life. All right. Thank you. And for people who are listening, please, I highly recommend that you listen to the Successful Mind podcast if you want to hear more conversations like this one. And you can go to davidnagel.com. And where else should we direct them? The Successful Mind podcast and davidnagel.com is fine. Otherwise, you could just Google my name and I'm everywhere. So it's it's not not hard to find. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, David. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.